Just a quick note before we get started to say thanks. Thanks to all of our listeners and a special thanks to all of our members of New Club. We started this golf society as a way to enjoy the game of golf with more people in some interesting places. It's actually the same reason we started the bag drop and called it Untold Stories in Golf. We kept meeting interesting people and we wanted to share their story with our members. Uh, so if you have ideas or suggestions for us, please email us. It's membership at newclub.golf. And if you're interested in becoming a member of New Club yourself, visit our website at newclub.golf. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for the support. And we really hope that you continue to enjoy your game. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Bag Drop. I'm your host, Matt Considine. Today, we spoke with Marty Sheen, three-time Illinois Open champion, former member of the PGA Tour, and the head men's golf coach of DePaul University. And then came on as the assistant for Betty Kaufman for one year at DePaul, and I've been the head men's coach, I guess it's about a year and a half now. Born and raised in Chicago Heights, Illinois, Marty is a self-taught caddy from the South Side who took his game all the way to the PGA Tour. After finishing an All-American career at the University of Illinois, Marty played his golf like the rest of us, working in an industrial sales job and getting out when he could. All that changed, however, when Marty played in the Illinois Open held at Flossmoor Country Club. He finished ninth that week and took home $1,000 as a prize money. From there, he decided to hang up the briefcase and play pro golf, which he did all around the world for the better part of 20 years. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Marty. He revisits his globetrotting life as a pro golfer, the need for speed in the college game today, plus the benefits of yoga on your game. So, uh, now let's, let's start with just uh, your college coaching. What was the first college uh, team you coached? When, when did you get into coaching? Boy, I guess it was about uh, 10 years ago. I started at the Chicago State University down on 95th and King. Um, I coached the men's team there for a little over five years. Um, and intermittently, when there were some coaching changes, I, I helped with the women's team a little bit. But that was my first, uh, you know, experience in Division One coaching. And, and it's so different than just being a golf instructor. You know, there's compliance, there's scheduling, there's recruitment. So that, that was a good start at Chicago State. Um, brought a team from, you know, not competitive, competitive at all. We came last in every tournament for a few years. And towards the end there, you know, we had some finishes in the middle of the pack and I had an individual win a tournament down at Western Illinois, a junior college transfer. Um, so we, we got the program fairly competitive, and there's something called APR. It's a measure of uh, eligibility, retainment, um, and graduation. And when I left, my APR was 1,000%, which is obviously as good as you can get. So, um, you know, we were graduating kids. We were keeping them eligible. Um, and that, that was a, a good success story down there. Just the, the APR component. I read something about your first, was it your first year there? You guys, your average, uh, score improved 42 strokes. I think that's probably accurate, but you know, they, they were playing, you know, uh, guys from the baseball team and, you know, I didn't have a full roster. I played a guy from the basketball team one time. He was a six foot eight guy named Matt Ross. And, you know, I was just looking for anybody that played golf. I go, do you play golf? He goes, yeah, I play golf. So I took him down to Purdue and we played a uh, one day, 36 hole event. And uh, I said, you in good shape? Oh yeah, I'm in good shape. Well, 36 holes is a little over 12 miles and, you know, about 140 or 130 shots each round. And he got in the back of that van and just passed out all the way to Chicago on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> he parred the first hole, though. I'll never forget that. He parred, parred the first hole, and, and, he, and the other guy made bogey. And he says, I beat a real golfer. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, was, uh, that is awesome. What, yeah. what, uh, what was your guys' home course for Chicago State? Originally, it was uh, Lost Marsh. 
but then ultimately I got us in at uh, Harborside, which was 10 minutes from campus, phenomenal facility, and, uh, you know, made the experience much better for the guys. And I took them to a lot of private clubs around town, too, um, over the years. So they had a good experience. So there's one other thing I, I read about, uh, or I saw somewhere, or heard maybe. It, was there a, a member of your Chicago State team that is a member at Augusta now? Is that true? <laughs> I don't think so. Back when I played uh, in the U.S. Open, if you came in the top 15 in the U.S. Open, you were in Augusta the next year, but I never did that. Really? So top 15, get into Augusta? This is, yeah, this is back. You know, way back, but I always looked at it. Hey, I can get the Masters if I finish top fifteen. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that us mid ams now dream about is just the uh, the only route in is the mid am, right? You got to finish. Yep. I guess they take two, don't they? You got to be. They take two. Yeah. Do you have to win it now? I don't know. Maybe it's probably one or two. That's our that's our pipe dream that we you know think about, but. What's your um, what's your coaching philosophy for for your college team? So I guess you moved on from Chicago State. You were were you with the the women's golf team at Loyola for a little while, and then and yeah, now at a couple of years, year and a half, two years or so up at Loyola, and then came on as the assistant for Betty Kaufman for one year at DePaul, and I've been the head men's coach. I guess it's about a year and a half now. So. What's your coaching philosophy now as as being the head coach at DePaul? What, how do you approach the team? Well, I, I'm trying to recruit kids that, that love the game, that are going to work hard, that are self-motivated. But, but there's also statistical parameters. You know, you've got to be ranked, you know, fairly high. Your differential to par has got to be pretty close to zero. You've had, got to have some success in winning. Um, so, you know, power is a big element. I, I prefer someone with, with some pretty good power, um, pretty good club has speed upwards of 110 or more. Um, so, you know, it's a statistical basis. Basically you have to be X or I'm not even considering you. I get a lot of resumes from kids that are great students, but they're 75 shooters and, you know, that just doesn't, it's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, you know, to be competitive in our conference, you need to, you need to be breaking par or shooting around par. So that's where I start. And then the, you know, obviously I'm, I'm looking for good students as well. So they don't struggle in school and we don't have any issues there. And um, so those are the two big things I'd say. So a D1, D1 program, I, I played uh, my college golf at University of Akron. And uh, you were an All-American at Illinois, right? Yes, I was. And so the, you know, I think about the range at the tournaments we would go to. And, and I recall seeing a variety of uh, body types, let's say. You know, you got your, your little guys, your, your uh, bigger boys, your scrawny little, little guys like me. And, and uh, you know, I just remember just a lot of... of uh, different uh, swings to a degree and different actions. You know, I went to the uh, uh, tournament out at Rich Harvest Farms, and, and of course it's the best teams in the country playing in the national championship, but uh, I just remember a lot of studs, you know, just really fit, strong, fast swings. And, and I just said, wow, man, I think things have really changed even since the, you know, 10, 12 years I've been out. Um, do you, do you see that? I mean, even just hearing you say, what made me think of it is, you know, saying you're, you kind of like to recruit for some speed and make sure, you know, people have that uh, in their games, speed and power. Has the game really changed for that in college golf? I think it has. I went to Rich Harvest Farms uh, three days for the NCAAs just to see, you know, what the best teams look like and what they're doing. And I, I came away with the same impression, you know, big, strong sort of stud athletes hitting at miles, you know, these, these are the top, top programs. And I think a lot of those top programs, because they have ability to pick and choose, you know, speed is a primary uh, factor. You know, if a kid isn't, you know, 110, 115, 120, um, they don't even consider them. And that's certainly what I saw at Rich Harvest. 
among, you know, your Oregon, your Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, uh, Illinois was there. But, yeah, that being said, there's still one of the best players ever that went to the University of Illinois, Dylan Meyer. You know, he swings it, whatever, 108 miles an hour. Um, he debuted his first professional tournament was the United States Open, and he came in like 20th and won $100,000. So um, there still is possibility for those guys to have success. But the modern game certainly is bomb and gouge. You know, there's guys that just hit it so far. Uh, statistically, for every 25 yards somebody hits it beyond you, there's almost a two-tenths of a shot advantage. So... You know, these guys that hit it 50 by you, you know, that's that's almost four-tenths of a shot advantage per hole uh, because of driving it so far. So you can't really deny those statistics, in my opinion. And, um, you know, Cameron Champ, for instance, you know, he's, he's 30 by everybody. And it's just an easier game from, from closer to the hole, isn't it? Usually. <laughs> Usually it is. So as as you're out there recruiting um, and, and you're you know trying to grow the program, uh, what teams are are you competing with? You know what what I guess you know locally are you recruiting from the Midwest majority? Or is it still a lot of Illinois kids? Uh, are you are you stepping out? Are you going the northwestern route and bringing in the Brits? What what's been your approach? I haven't really gone across the pond. Um, I've tried to stick to the Midwest. I've also networked like every pro I've ever known, tell them where I'm at, what I'm looking for. Uh, with that said, Mike Adams sent me, uh, a, a young player for 2019. Um, Mike Adams is a national teacher of the year. He teaches out at the medalist in the winter. I was down there when I was in Florida, uh, checking in with him. Um, so I've got a I've got a kid, uh, Stephen Saul is his name. He's coming in 2019, very highly ranked. I think he was 111 uh, on junior golf scoreboard when he verbally committed. He's won national junior events. I think he shot 69, 70, 66 to win the Bubba Conley, which is a, a big junior event. Um, so there's one recruit that came from networking, if you will. I ran into a kid from Ireland up at Stonewall Orchard uh, attempting to qualify for the U.S. Junior, which he did, um, and I recruited him for 2019. So that was just out in the field, you know, looking around. He's got big speed, big kid, probably carries it 300. I think he said his swing is in the 120s. Um and then I, I got a kid from Michigan for 2019 who another coach referred me to. Um, it wasn't a good fit for his school. He's a real uh, smart kid academically, uh, looking, for, looking for a good school um, academically. So he's coming in 2019 as well. So, it, you know, it's, it's by far, you know, it's only my second recruiting class, but this one with these three players um, should really turn the program around. And, and you know, our, our competition in conference is Marquette. They're, they're the best, highest-ranked team in the conference. But um, if I can out-recruit them, then certainly we're going to be very competitive in the Big East. And, w- and when you get those, uh, those players, those kids to your program, um, you know, what's, what do you think of the – maybe a couple keys to, to success for, for a team that, you know, as the coach, what, what are some of the things you try to put in place that uh, get the best out of them? Yeah. Well, this winter we've really concentrated on four to eight foot putts. That's where uh, college players differ vastly from PGA tour players. You know, PGA tour players are probably making 30% more putts from that range than we are. And it's a simple skill that I think if we practice it and put pressure on them and test them and measure uh, what they do from that distance, it's a simple way to get better, just controlling um, or putting from four to eight feet. 
you look at Ricky Fowler last week at the Waste Management, you know, 15th hole, he hits the green in two, he putts it up six, seven feet, makes it. 16, he misses the green, chips it five feet, makes it. 17, he drives the green, lags it up six, seven feet, makes it. Last hole, chips it up five feet, makes it. Well, you know, an average college player might miss two of those. Well, that's two shots. That's a lot of shots just in four holes. So we've really concentrated on four to eight foot. And um, we've also been using our flight scope indoor quite a bit and concentrating on uh, distance control with our wedges. So um, I think putting, wedge, distance control, and driving it in play are the three most important factors. And, and you've been um, uh, an accredited PGA instructor for a long time. Um, do, do you ever, I mean, when a kid comes to you, he's probably been working with a swing coach for a while. Do, do you help out in that regard at all? Yeah, absolutely. We, we work on um, technique, instruction, setup, but I also communicate with their teacher um, who they've had probably a long time. I don't want to screw up what they've done or, or go down the wrong road to get a player that I've identified as pretty good and try and redo everything. Um, generally, I'll watch him play a week or two, certainly in the fall, kind of Unless it's something's really going bad, um, just let them play through the fall, and then any any big changes we make are in the winter time. Um, but I'll, I'll communicate with their coach and ask them what they're working on. And uh, you know, so, some kid might have a shut face. I remember I was down in Cincinnati this summer working with one of my better players. I went and watched his lesson with his coach. And I said, you know, I noticed the face is shut at the top of the swing. Is that a concern for you? He said, no, because of this, this, and this. You know, he might have fast hips and a and a hold-off release, you know. But but a younger coach uh, might have said, oh, you've got a shut face. I'm going to fix that. Well, you, I might have totally screwed the kid up because it, it's not an issue. It's not causing a problem, you know what I'm saying? It's interesting. It's kind of like just making sure you have the information, right, of you know, what the background was with former instructors and current instructors. And then, um, yeah, that's uh, it makes sense. The, uh, I was curious on your four to eight foot putts that uh, the team's working on. How do you simulate pressure? Well, we 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 just don't hit the same putt over and over. Like yesterday, we tested them and we've been doing this since we started. Uh, you hit 20 putts, four to eight foot. I'll call out the putt, six foot, eight foot, four foot, five foot. They randomly place the ball on our synthetic indoor green um, in a different spot each time, do their full routine, hit the putt, and then we write down how many they made. Um, takes about 20 minutes, but we have a chalkboard with, every week how many they made of these putts so you know there's a result it's recorded and we're trying to see if they're getting better which they actually are getting better now i don't know if it's because they know the break of the putt even though it's somewhat random um or whether you know, all this practice is is helping them but i think they're getting better at four to eight put, foot putts so like I said, we're measuring it and testing them each week in that fashion. Got to know the metrics, right? You got to have the score of, of what, uh, where you're improving and, and where you're not. Right. And we're going to test them on the grass uh, tomorrow um, on some really, really good greens at Lake Nona. So we're going to do 20 random four day foot putts tomorrow and see how they do on real grass and then there'll be a little more break and grain and all that sort of thing the average tour player uh, makes 16 out of 20 so um that's what we're aspiring to get to yeah lake lake nona putting greens lake lake Nona's not a bad place to hang out if you're a 19 20 year old that's uh it's a pretty good spot well part of the whole 
thing is their experience, right? To get them the grandest, best experience that they'll remember um, their whole life. So um, I've got some buddies that went to Illinois that are actually members down there, and they're kind enough to host us. So we'll uh, we'll be out at Lake Nona tomorrow afternoon. Very cool. Yeah, I, I sometimes wonder. What, I know when I was in college playing college golf, going to all these great courses and, you know, free pro V's. And I, I know right. there was still things I was complaining about. I just can't remember what the heck it would have been. Um, <laughs> so if it, every time I, I meet a college golfer, I tell them just, uh, Hey, make sure you're enjoying it, you know, work at the craft, get better, but you, you better soak it in, man. Cause it is, uh, uh, an experience, not many people, less than 1% of all golfers for sure get a chance to enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, just in Chicago, over the last year, we've played Butler, we played Cog, Rich Harvest Farms. Uh, I know we've been out to Beverly, um, Calumet. Anyway, we play a lot of different courses around town, which, you know, they'd never get on if, if, if it weren't for the, they're on the team, you know. Yeah. So yeah, we we know variety, man. That's that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, on your instruction, I, I this is another thing I stumbled across on the interwebs, and I wanted to know if you could confirm or deny. Did did you coach a uh, pretty famous Chicago comedian at one point? You know, Bernie Mac used to come out to Green Garden. Is that who you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's it. But I really didn't teach him. I mean, I was around him. But uh, this girl named Alexis, I think she liked Alexis more than me. Um, she she taught him for a number of years, yeah. Right up until he died, actually. He'd come out with uh, the oxygen and whatnot. He'd be taking lessons. And yeah, he, he was out there. Yeah, he always dressed, uh, you know, monochromatic. You know, it was always all red or purple or blue or yellow or quite a dresser. I, I, he seems like a big personality. I couldn't imagine him on the golf course. Yeah, he was very nice. He was he was very, uh, like you say, big personality, very expressive, very nice, very very nice man. Um, so we're we're sitting here in winter. Uh, we just came out of our our most recent polar vortex. Um, what I'm curious is uh, a young Marty Sheen. You know, when he was a kid. What was his winter sport? What did he do in the winter? Well, I played basketball at Bloom High School, actually. Um, freshman year, sophomore year, and uh, didn't quite make the cut uh, junior year. So I dove on the, on the swimming team uh, those two years, uh, junior and senior year. But I, I was an all-sport guy. I played growing up. I was... Uh, Basketball, baseball, football, and then kind of got into golf like seventh, eighth grade. And along that recruiting line, um, a multi-sport athlete usually is going to be better than someone that just plays golf. There's just all the physical attributes that you gain playing different sports, being on a team, being a team player. So I, I actually love uh, multi-sport athletes. Did uh, Bloom was kind of a powerhouse back in the day, weren't they? Weren't they kind of the same yeah, of their day? Absolutely. My freshman and sophomore year, we were runner-up in state in basketball. I had a guy named Audie Matthews, who was a McDonald's All-American that went to Illinois. So you played you played hoops. What uh, what did you do for your golf game in the Chicago winters? I remember one winter I hit into a like a net. Uh, for quite a while, then I came out in the spring and I was duck hooking everything. So uh, <laughs> that didn't work. That didn't work. For, you know, there's no ball flight metrics back then. But we we play all winter at Glen Woody. If there was if there was no snow and it was reasonably warm, you know, there was always a game at Glen Woody, and we didn't go out just for fun. There was usually a little money on the line. So. Um, but yeah, other than that, you know, there wasn't, there weren't any domes or anything back then. So you just, you know, you might hit indoors, and but you kind of just put the clubs down. To be honest, for a while, you didn't didn't do a whole lot unless 
there were some mild days, then you'd go out and play. And your <laughs> your your whole family grew up around the game, and you still got brothers that are that are in the game, right? Yeah, we all grew up caddying at Idlewild. Um, my older brother's retired, and he he's got a part time job at St Andrews, where he plays about five times a week. And he's better than ever. He can beat me now, which is scary. And then my younger brother um, went to Illinois. He was an ag engineer, but he worked for Nicholas, Jack Nicholas, building courses for about 14 years all over the world. So I guess we're all kind of have been in the business. Yeah, that's good. And you guys all played. You guys caddied. Uh, was Glenn Woody where you guys learned the game? I would say so. I mean, Idlewild, you know, you got to play on Monday from in front of the tee on a downhill line in the rough. Um, so we were, you know, they didn't let us tee off the tee. You take a big divot there, I guess. But <coughs> it wasn't until I got to Glen Woody where I could play every day that my game kind of surged um, and I started, you know, getting halfway decent. So Glen Woody was really where I learned the game. Um, no formal lessons, just try to figure it out on my own, which obviously didn't exactly accelerate the learning curve. So I was pretty raw. I was just kind of a raw athlete um, trying to figure it out, to be honest. And, I mean, you you, uh, you played other, all, the, all sports. Um, why did you end up gravitating to golf? Well, it was such an individual sport and, and you weren't relying on team members and you could, I just figured you could just get as good as you wanted just by practicing. And uh, it was more stimulating certainly than baseball, which was real slow at times. Um, football, my mom retired me from football after eighth grade. I was the quarterback on the team. I think I'm going to high school to play football and, she retired me. She said, you're done. So, um, and then I was just left with basketball because baseball got too boring. Um, and then I, I don't know, golf, it just is such an individual sport. I just, I just really took to it because of that. And I just kind of hooked me. I just loved it early on. Yeah. Yeah. You, you made it, you, your football career lasted longer than mine. My mom benched me in first grade. I think she saw one game and she's like, yeah, you're, you're done. All, all 42 pounds move. of you. Yeah, it was probably a good move. Right. Back. Uh, was there somebody in, in the Sheen House or, or maybe at Glenn Woody or wherever that you learned the game from? You said you were self-taught, but was there somebody that you kind of admired or started to model your game after or just kind of pick some things up from? Well, there was a pro at Glenwood he called Dave Mose, who was a very, very good player and instructor. And I'd watch him swing and play. Um, so I guess if anybody influenced me, it was probably him. Um, you know, I just looked up to a PGA pro so much. And he was so modest. He never said anything about, like, any tournaments. And then I joined the Illinois PGA and I see his name on all these trophies and he never once said anything about winning anything, which looking back, is that's kind of the way he was. He was just a very quiet, very modest guy. I mean, he talked about playing like with Hogan and Nelson sometimes and things like that, but it was kind of weird that he never even mentioned, Oh, I won the Illinois senior open three times in a row, whatever he did, things like that. He was a very modest guy, but, uh, technically, you know, a very, very good swinger of the club. I guess I kind of tried to mimic him. But more than that, you know, I'd watch TV, and I love Johnny Miller. I love that white belt, and I kind of swang like him a little bit. I had long blonde hair like him, and that was kind of my idol growing up was, was Johnny Miller, I suppose. I I see a little bit of Miller in your in your swing, I, and I we haven't met or played together, obviously, but uh, again, the internet's a fascinating place. I, I got some footage of your, of your golf swing and, uh, you do have kind of a, a very fluid throwback, uh, 
uh, action, which is, it's just, it's a, it's a thing of beauty. Well, I kind of slid my legs at the target a little bit like he did. And, you know, they don't, they don't teach anything like that these days. It's all rotary and ground force and, um, you know, it's a whole different swing, but that's, that's kind of who I, I idolized was Johnny Miller. I, I think the, uh, you know, the first time I, I actually heard your name, I was playing with some buddies at uh, Dubs Dread. Is, was that kind of a home course for you uh, once you started getting serious to your game? I, I think you may have had a course record at a, at a point there. That's true. I did. Um, I was lucky enough, the, the general manager at Glenwoody, Nick Mokelke, he went on to become the general manager of Cog Hill. So when I got into the business, he asked me to come to Cog Hill and work um, as a professional there. So that's where I worked. I did a little bit of everything when I was a, an apprentice, but I'd play that golf course almost every night, every evening, um, and just played it like crazy. And it was such a difficult course that when I left there, nothing seemed that difficult. You know what I mean? So... Um, I honed my game there. I practiced like crazy on the range, back behind the barn, um, just hitting balls, hitting sand shots, doing everything I could. Um, and in 1989, they had a U.S. Open sectional qualifying there. And it was my home track, obviously. <coughs> Remember, I played bad in the morning. I was a little nervous. I think I shot 74 in the morning. 75 maybe and I was walking past the 2-4 building to the putting green and they, they said oh th this guy he's alone the guy playing with him quit and it was Jerry Matten I think he's president of the CDGA now so I joined up with Jerry in a twosome and I got in a rhythm as you have and a lot of golfers have and I just felt so comfortable and I shot a bogeyless 68, which tied Bob Golby for the course record at that point in time. Um, and uh, qualified for the U S open out at Oak Hill where Curtis strange won his second U S open in a row. But yeah, that, that was, that did tie the course record at that point in time. But a lot of these kids, they don't realize like, it's a different game now. When you had a wooden club and a balada ball compared to today, it's just, it's like an aluminum bat almost, you know, in baseball. It's just an entirely different game. You, you could hit a ball on the toe with a wooden club, and it would duck hook 180 yards. You know, now it just hangs out to the right and goes, you know, 280 in the air or whatever. I mean, you, you look at the numbers, like like I have an assistant who is a very good player. His name's Jared Steger, and he played at Western Illinois, and he was really good. You know, he averaged, I think, his senior year or whatever, like 70 point something, you know. He goes, well, what was your average in college? Now, my junior year, my average was like 74 point something, okay? And it was like fourth or fifth in the Big Ten probably behind John Cook and Tom Lehman and somebody else, right? He goes, well, that's not very good. I go, well, it was whatever, fourth or fifth in the Big Ten. So we go over to Illinois State to play a tournament. They got a big thing up on the wall about uh, DA points. And it's got a stroke average, 74 point something, lowest stroke average in Illinois State history at that point in time. So it, it was a harder game, right? The ball... Mm -hmm didn't go nearly as far. I remember the first hole at Glen Woody. It was a 450-yard hole. You know, we'd hit driver three iron. Well, nobody does that anymore on a 450-yard hole. So, I mean, I sound like an yeah. old man, but, but it was a very, very different game, a more difficult game. No, it, 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 I mean, I've uh, pulled out my uncles and, and dad's old persimmons. I didn't grow up with any persimmon club i don't think ever 
in, a, in my bag. So I was kind of the first generation just past it. But, uh, you know, w- we stand in awe and watch people, you know, swing a 460cc club as fast as they can with this massive sweet spot. And they hit it, you know, 350 down the middle. Um, but I've been playing this past summer with a, with a persimmon uh, Wilson whale. So it's not even like the the persimmons you're talking about. This was like the biggest of the persimmons, and it's still a, a baby head in my eyes. But uh, but you know when I catch that thing on the screws, that's where I'm like, whoa, that was that was something special. And and it's just more skill. It, it takes more skill to catch the, the um, to swing a club with with similar speed, but to have such a, a smaller margin of error and execute on it versus you know, we can kind of recklessly go at those, the new technology. It's just, uh, I, I, I now have an appreciation that if you would have told me that last year, I would have kind of been okay, old man. But, <laughs> but now I, I totally get what you're saying. It, it was, uh, it had to have been a more skillful game. For sure. For sure. That's why they said that the better players separated themselves more than today because they were hitting it in the center of the face and the marginal guys, that error was exacerbated, you know. Do, do you think the the courses have not changed? Like, obviously, you know, um, I'd imagine the college courses that you played on are very different from the college courses that, uh, you know, your team's playing on now. Have they um, just, would you say that's true? And, and have they not, uh, I guess, defended par, as they say? Uh, in the same rate that technology has changed and that, you know, that the players have changed? Well, they, they we, we go to these courses and they play them, you know, they'll tip them out at least 7,000 yards long. So they, they play them very difficult. And, but they're, they're a good test. It's a good pair test for the guys. Yeah. yeah it's, it's just like that, that 74 on a 6,800-yard course with Persimmons, you know, versus the, the 60 eight average that you're seeing today on a 74,000 yard course. It's just, uh, it'd be interesting to look at those, those stats over the years. Yeah, it would be uh, a quick sidebar on your brother. So he, he worked for Nicholas uh, in Nicholas course design. I'm, I've always been curious about, you know, the people involved with like Jack or Arnie. Did, did your brother ever share how often, you know, Jack is on site or, or how did you work directly with them? Like, what's the story with the signature courses? Well, in the contract, there, there was a stipulation where Jack would make X number of trips to the property. Um, and he, he was more hands-on than I realized talking to my brother. Um, he said he had a very, very good eye. He could figure out holes and, and routings and things to do really quickly. He was very impressed with him. And um, he'd always, on a signature course, you know, he'd always play the inaugural round. Um, but he, he made, I, I don't know how many trips. It might have been a half a dozen trips. Um to visit the golf course, but he said he, he was pretty hands-on and, and very, very knowledgeable. And, and your brother's job, what, what was your brother specifically doing? Yeah, he, he had the uh, drawings from Nicholas Design, and he was the guy on site to make sure that they built it to the specifications on the drawings. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Big job. Yeah, it was a big job. So, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your, your time with Illinois as a college golfer. Uh, you obviously enjoyed you know, your time in college or you probably wouldn't be a college golf coach. Uh, in the, uh, what were some highlights for you of your college golf career? I know you became a, a hall of famer. You're in there with Steve Stricker and uh, Mike small. Um, you, uh, I think, did, you know, what, what were some memories of your college time that stand out to you? Um, I played 36 holes with John Cook on the Scarlet course at Ohio State one time, so that was certainly um, one of the highlights. I guess my junior year, uh, we hosted the Big Ten. Back then, 
schools, you'd play the university course. So we hosted the Big Ten at Illinois, and I shot 292, Tom Lehman shot 291, and John Cook shot 290. So um, there was another person tied with Lehman or Cook, so I came in fourth, but that probably was the highlight. I never won in college. I came close, but uh, I was just more of a, a steady player um, that just loved to compete. Yeah, and I and I did go was to the NCAA's that year as an individual, um, and I came in about thirtieth or something. Gary Hallberg uh, won the individual title for Wake Forest, and Ohio State won the team title, which was very very unusual back then for a northern team to be competitive in the NCAA's. But when we were playing with them throughout the year, they would win every tournament by 50 shots and we're like god these guys are good we didn't realize that they were in fact the best in the country but that's how good they were um they won the ncaa's you know is that like uh john cook and joey sindelar and that's exactly that team yep I'm i'm an ohio kid john cook was born in akron where i was born and raised and my, my uncle's actually played in a bantam golf league with Johnny Cook. Uh, nice. They they couldn't stand him because he you know kicked their butts every week. But uh, yeah, they knew he was he was going to be pretty good. Yeah, for sure. Um, so looking, was there anyone else you really liked to beat in college? Was there anybody that just like either on your own team or uh, or kind of a rivalry, if you will, someone you're like, man, I got to beat this guy. Well, there was a guy on our team named Ken Kalaney, who was from Rockford. He was, I don't think I ever beat him uh, in the two years he was there. He never shot in the 80s, which back then, you know, it was easy to shoot 80 on a 40-degree day with the wind blowing 40. But he was so good um, that I, I, I couldn't beat him. Um, I don't think I ever beat him. But he was a heck of a player. And we were a pretty average team, but the one thing I remember, like from a coaching standpoint, uh, which is, I mean, I loved my coach. I had a great relationship with my coach, but there really wasn't any player development. <laughs> there wasn't any like, okay, he might say go hit three footers or go hit flop shots or work on your punch shot, but th- there was no technical instruction. There was no video um there was kind of very little player development, I would say. And that, that was just the era. That wasn't necessarily my coach. I would say all the coaches were pretty similar probably. Yeah, they, they, they were just getting you to tournaments and making sure you're staying out of trouble, let you do your thing. Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely changed then. Um, you obviously have some good memories looking back. What, what do you hope your players in your program, you know, when when they're your age and they're looking back on their college experience, what do you hope they remember? Well, I hope they remember that I cared about them and I tried to give them the best experience possible and uh, hopefully that I developed them and made them, you know, the best player they could become. So, uh, Post-college. So, you know, I don't know if – we, we can all, we, we probably all can't relate to, to being an All-American like yourself, uh, but uh, a lot more of us can, can relate to a shitty sales job. Uh, I think I read that after school, you, you had a lot of game, but you, you started uh, just working in sales, is that right? And then, and then you came back to competitive golf? Well, it's true. It's kind of a funny story. Like, I got out of college, and I, I wanted to be a professional, but um, my parents were living in Houston then, so I went and waited tables at night and just practiced during the day. And I was getting better and better and better. So I qualified for the U.S. Amateur um, at Pinehurst. So I, I think I put too much pressure on myself at that tournament. Like, this is it. This is the deciding moment. You know, this is going to define me. This is going to, you know, whatever. And, and I go to tee the ball up on the first tee of the U.S. Am. And I can hardly get the ball on the tee. I'm choking. I shoot like 
eighty seventy six, and I'm like, I'm done. I'm gonna go get a job. And my dad worked in the steel business, and um, I, w- I got a job in the steel business. You know, it, uh, as a vendor, you know, a salesman. U.S. Steel Gary, U.S. Steel South Chicago, and Republic Steel. Those are my three accounts. So I'd bring in my donuts and my sandwiches, and if everything was all right, I'd be teeing it up by one o'clock at Glenwoody with a with a little NAS on a Scotch game, and 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 I played like a lot. Um, if I wasn't in the steel mill, I was out gambling at Glenwoody, and I was still pretty good, you know. And um, I'll never forget. I I I decided like after four years in the steel business, I'm just going to turn pro and see if I can tee it up for money, you know? So I play the Illinois Open at Flossmore. Lance Tembrock wins. And I came in ninth. And I win $1,000. I'm like, ah, this is easy. I play a tournament at what's now Joe Lewis the Champ, which used to be what they call on the Chitlin Tour. And I win $1,000 there, like in the first two weeks. I went like $2,000. So <coughs> I go up to the Buick Open in Michigan, Flint, Michigan, at Warwick Hills. And you could qualify on a Monday. You didn't have to pre-qualify or anything. You just threw down your $100. Four guys got in. I get in the tournament. And I was playing Yellow Pinnacles at the time just because they lasted so long. Um, I wasn't going to buy a Bellata ball because, you know, you shred that thing in nine holes. Anyway, so kind of a funny story. I'm playing Yellow Pinnacles at the time, and I get in the locker room, and the the tightless guy's there with his white coat and everything. He goes, and back then, you either played 90s or 100s, you know. He goes, what do you play? You play 90s or 100s? I go, actually, I play Yellow Pinnacle. He looks at me like I'm from Mars. He goes, well, I don't have any of those today, but they'll be in your locker tomorrow. So sure enough, I look in my locker tomorrow. There's three dozen yellow pinnacles. I think I hit the lottery. So I go to the first tee. Now, this is exactly the opposite of the U.S. amateur. I still have a job. You know, I'm, I'm still the salesman. I took a couple days off. My, my boss said, hey, you know, you don't have, you only have, you're missing a day off. I go, well, I'm playing this tournament. You can do what you want, but I'm playing. <laughs> so, so, so I'll never forget. I'm on the first, the 10th tee of Warwick Hills and I'm playing with, um, Gavin Levinson and Gene Sowers. And they go, you know, I got a one, I got a two. And they know I'm a Monday qualifier because I'm in category three. You know, these guys are non-winners, whatever. And I go, I got a yellow pinnacle. And they look at me like, who have we got today? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, and I am not nervous at all. I hit three with down the middle. I wedge it to two or three feet. I knock it in for birdie, my first PGA Tour event. I par the next. I birdie the next two holes. I say to my buddy who's on the bag, I, I go, I'm going to win this thing, you know? Well, I shoot 71, 73, even par. And I missed the cut by two shots. But after that, I was like, this is where I'm going to go for it. I'm hooked. I call my boss. I go, Ed, I'm done. I'll give you two, three, four weeks, whatever you want, but I'm done. So that was kind of what really, really got me going on professional golf was playing in the Buick Open back in whatever it was, probably 84 or 5 or whatever it was. So. Wow, that is so that is such a cool story. Uh, how long did the yellow pinnacles last in the bag? Those three dozen had to have lasted you the, the full season, right? Oh, I'm sure. I play until they crack in half. That's how long I play. They, <laughs> they break. They break. Yeah, they, they split in half. Sometimes, if I kept there, them long enough. Like like nowadays, everyone would say, you know, oh my gosh, that's just such an inferior ball. Were, were people? <laughs> is that why they looked at you funny, or was it because they're just bright yellow? I think it was both, but nobody played a solid ball. They're all playing a wound ball, you know. Yeah. And it was, it wasn't, 
as good a ball, but it was just the ball I played. I'm like, uh, this is just like a normal day at Glen Woody, I figured. So so from there, you, you quit your job, you, you give it a full go. Um, you end up competing for 15 years all around the world. You know, what I could dig up, I think I saw, you know, the Canadian tour on there. I saw the South African tour, a couple Asian tours, Australian tours. I mean, what a what a ride. I mean, what was it like playing professional golf all around the world? Well, I love to travel and, and some guys don't, you know. So it's just not for them because, you know, travel can be difficult sometimes. But, you know, I started, I'd go to Canada in the summer. And then in the winter, which was summer in South Africa, I'd go to South Africa. And uh, so I had 10 summers in five years, basically. One in Canada, one in South Africa. And the South African tour, I just fell in love with it. There were a lot of European guys would come down and play because the European tour wasn't really a global tour then. And, you know, they'd kind of tune up down there. So I played, I actually played golf with David Faraday down there and, um, you know, some of the Euros and, you know, that, that was a televised, you know, roped off big event down there. Um, you know, we'd play, you know, the South African Open, the PGA. Um, and there were some great players down there. And I just kind of fell in love with tournament golf down there. And uh, even in Canada, too, same thing. You know, um, a lot of guys there went on to the PGA Tour. and um, It was a wonderful country. At the end of the tour, I played down there for five years in a row. I'd always take a excursion and go on a safari or something to Botswana or West Africa or, you know, the Okavanga Delta, you know, um, I just really, really enjoyed it down there. Yeah. That was going to be a question for you is, you know, all those interesting places that, you know, most of us don't, don't get to, you you went there to play competitive golf, but how much time were you able to kind of soak in cultures and, uh, you know, do some stuff off the golf course? Yeah. Just, just kind of the week at the end, um, because when you're playing, you know, it, you're, you're full on six days a week and the seventh day you're traveling. So it's, it's, there's not a lot of time for other things when you're, you know, it'd probably be a dozen tournaments in a row or something like that. One time I went to Asia, I had to go to the Q school the first week. Uh, I played 14 weeks in a row in Asia. Now that's, you know, You'd play six, and on the seventh day, you'd get on a bus, you'd go through customs and immigration, you'd get on a plane, you'd fly from Jakarta to Kuala Lumpur, you'd go through customs and immigration, and you'd take a bus back to the hotel. That was your day off. So imagine playing 14 weeks in a row. How, how do you take care of your body at that point? I mean, like that's what I think of is, I know a 36 old day or, or, or two back to back days, I'm sore as hell. What, what, what did you do for your body back in the eighties to, to withstand that schedule? I did yoga every day. Really? Every day. I did yoga. Oh yeah. It was so restorative. So restorative. You were way ahead of the curve. I mean, that's obviously a big uh, thing now is um, a lot of golfers are, are, I know Kuchar is a big yoga guy and a ton of them make it part of the regime, but you, so you've been doing it for 30 years. Yeah, nobody nobody was doing it back then, or very very few. I didn't know of anybody. I just had a yoga mat, and uh, there were times I did it. You know, I'd do it before my round always, and then sometimes I'd do it in the evening too. So at least once a day, but it just it brought you back, you know, after a really hard day. Where did you pick that up at? My college golf coach. Funny enough. Uh, had us doing yoga way back in the seventies, yeah. And then I ran into Mac O'Grady one time, and he goes, "The secret is yoga." So I bought a book, uh, Yoga the the Iyengar Way, and it, it had all these programs laid out um, in the book. And I would I would just did it, and you know what a lot of people don't know about yoga. You can do yoga for and for different effects, right? You can do forward bends that are calming. You can do inversions that are, 
stimulating. You can do sitting poses that fire up your legs like, you know, you have no idea. I'll never forget, I played the U.S. Open qualifier at Cantini, and I was 43 years old, and it's obviously a 36-hole day, and I had my whole day planned out. I did my yoga in the morning, brought my nutritious food for in between, and did, I had about an hour and 15 minutes or so in between the two rounds, and I did uh, all this restorative yoga in between, uh, you know, fired up my legs, you know, a lot of forward poses, you know, some just relaxing poses. And I got up from my yoga. It was like I just woke up and just carried me right through the afternoon. So um, there I did it for it, certain effect, you know. It's, it's, uh, I've, I've become a big yogi. I, I'm engaged to um, a yoga enthusiast who got me into it uh, three years ago. We started dating and, you know, I was just doing it because she liked it. But that summer, um, and I was probably doing it two, three times a week. And then that summer, I go out to the golf course. I, I'm not kidding. I think I gained like 10 miles per hour in my, my swing speed. And, and I, you know, buddies are like, God, so you got, you got some distance. What, what, what happened? You've been hitting the gym. And I, I, at the time, I didn't have the hard to tell him. I was like, I think it's just yoga. I think that's all it is. And um, it, it definitely, the restorative piece to it is so true. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. You still you still do it today? Do you have your team doing it as well? You know, I don't. Um, I still do it here and there. Like I'll probably do you know ten or fifteen minutes this morning, just to get the kinks out. I did it the last couple of days, so I don't do it as religiously as I used to. But if I have a tournament, I will definitely do it just to loosen up. You know, probably need it more than ever now. Uh, let's jump to 1993. So you got your tour card, your PGA tour card in 1993. How was that year different from, you know, the 15 others you spent uh, playing around the world? Well, it was weird because the previous year I played on what's now the web.com. It was probably one of my best years of golf. Um, I had three sixty fours in competition um I had multiple top tens. I finished twenty fourth on the money list. You know, I was playing really, really well. And I got to the big tour and just being a caddy from the south side, I'm lacing up my shoes, looking over at Greg Norman, who was the number one player in the world, and I was kind of beat, you know. I I just I just never felt comfortable. I never played anywhere near how I could and it was it was it was such a big stage for me that I don't know, I just I was a little out of my league to be totally honest. And I I played very poorly that year and was off the tour. Did was it do you think it was harder at that time to keep PJ tour cards in it today or about the nah, same? It was probably easier. I, I think everything was easier. I think it was easier, but I just I just yeah. didn't play that well. If I'd have played like I played the year before, I'd probably stayed out there. But just uh, you know, you can't. It, it's it's if you're not comfortable and confident, and it's it's a hard game. And so I true. Just yeah, a lot of the league. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the the other golf experiences i mean is is there a highlight uh that you remember from that year i mean it's four what you say 464s that's pretty darn good in competition on bj tour well this was on the web i was on the web the year before oh um, that was on the web okay yeah i mean i had a couple chances to win i left one hanging on the lip in maine one time to get in a playoff and um i think i won the Illinois open back to back that year so that was fun came from six shots back with seven to go to uh, ultimately tie Gary Groen and beat him in a playoff. So that was probably one of the highlights of the year, even though it was a smaller event. Um, but yeah, I just, I got comfortable out there on the web and just started playing like I could play. And I was just mentally in a really good spot. Well, you played, uh, 
and you have one. I mean, you won three Illinois Opens, um, played in, I think I saw nine Western Westerns, uh, four U.S. Opens. Uh, of all those, was there a favorite? Well, I mean, obviously winning the Illinois Open is, is great, but, you know, it's a smaller event. You know, whenever I, I really enjoyed getting in U.S. Opens, even though I didn't perform that well, just because it's, you know, every spring that was my goal to get in that tournament and all my training and everything was focused on that. So even though I didn't play that well, the U.S. Opens were just so cool. The uh, uh, the Times or the Sun Times did an article on you. It was the 2001 at Southern Hills. A reporter asked you if you'll make the cut this week or if you thought you'd make the cut this week. Do you remember what your response to him was? You know, I think that was Phil Cozen rest his soul who was out there and I was pretty candid with him you know I knew I was I played a practice round with Ernie Els and um, you know he's hitting a 30 by me he's hitting a three wood with my driver kind of like what am I doing here you know I was at the end of my career and I probably said there's no way I'm going to make the cut no you didn't it it was uh, my goal is to win do you want oh, me to God. say that I want to come in 61st place? My goal is to shoot as low as I can and win this thing. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, yeah. Well, that was, that was, that was a good goal, I suppose, right? I mean, that's what you're supposed hey. to say. You're not there to come in last, I suppose. But and You're probably on the way to the tee to, to watch Ernie pound his uh, three-wood past you all day. <laughs> yeah. I mind. also, yeah, I also played a practice round with Thomas Bjorn, Lee Westwood, and Darren Clark, which, you know, that, that was one quarter of the Ryder Cup team at that point in time. And they were so good. I'll never forget Darren Clark. He would just say to the caddy, what should I do here? And whatever he said, like, I'll just little hit, hit a little hook three iron down here, hit a little cut this or that. He hit the exact shot the caddy said to hit. I was like, oh, my God, are these guys good. Now, they're at the height of their career, right? They're probably 30, 34. I'm 43. But watching that for 18 holes, I'm like, oh, my God, are these guys good. Uh, I do remember that and how good they were. What a, what a, what a group. Did you um, – it sounds like you played with a lot of Europeans over – Europeans and South Africans. Is that – just from your time on the uh, those other tours? Yeah, mainly. <laughs> at, at the U.S. Open, you, there was a sign-up sheet, right? And you just pencil your name in at the time. And it was so hot down there at Southern Hills that I wanted to play early. And at like 6.30, it was Darren Clark, Lee Westwood, Thomas Bjorn. I just put my name in there, Marty Sheen. And I saw their manager, who I used to play with in the South African tour, in the breakfast line. I go, look, I put my name down with your boys. I hope that's okay. He was managing all these guys, this guy named Chubby Chandler. And he goes, oh, no, Marty, that's fine. It'll be fine. And they were, they were pretty cool. You know, they knew I was a nobody. And, um, but Darren Clark was very nice and the others were a little standoffish, but, um, it, it was, it was good. It was good. Uh, who, who won 2001? Is that one of, uh, that's was a chief one that they cut they cut that 18th hole it was so severe the the green balls were rolling off the green going like 80 yards down the fairway there's a big slope so they cut the 18th hole the green they had to cut it a little longer and i think stewart sink pre-putted it or something i can't remember but i think retief won it four u.s opens that's that's pretty sweet um, well, Marty, this has been awesome, man. You know, one, one thing I find fascinating about your story is, you know, you're, you're a caddy from Southside Chicago. You, know, you kind of self-taught yourself the game. You've had all these great experiences and, uh, it, it seems like you've gone through periods of just, you know, like high confidence that, you know, to quit your job and to, to give it a go or to, to, you know, compete at the level that you did. And then, you got moments of like true vulnerability that I think we all can relate to of just feeling, you know, nervous and anxious and, and losing that confidence. Um, you know, what, what do you think 
is that just the nature of golf? You know, you, you get, you go through those rides or, um, I just think it's such a human quality to, to go in between those emotions. I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, it, it's hard to explain, you know, I just, sometimes you're comfortable and you can play like you can play and sometimes you aren't. And it's, it can be, you'd have thought my first PGA tour event, I'd be nervous as, as get out, but I wasn't because I had no expectations. I think a lot of the, the problem is your expectations. You know, you expect to do well, you're all hyped up. Well, that puts pressure on you and you underperform. I kind of preach to my guys, you know, have no expectations. Just get into the process and hit the shot and accept the results. That was Marty Sheen, head men's golf coach at DePaul University in Chicago. Thanks, Marty, for sharing your story with us. Best of luck this year to you and the Blue Demons.